1: everybody and welcome to the talking about podcast i am your host daniel olinger joined as always by sean kennedy and second in a week in a row i think maybe fifth out of our last eight podcasts we have a guest sean
2: well when you get peter Dinwiddie into your front office (laughs) you have to bring somebody on the pod that can talk to his background because everyone out there they need more Dinwiddie in their lives and uh yeah we're happy to have Tony East, so I'll let you introduce him real quick.
1: Yeah, Tony, he covers the Indiana Pacers for Forbes Sports, and he's a host of the Locked on Pacers podcast, which he may or may not be recording after recording with (laughs) us tonight. Very very, uh, glad that Tony was willing to do this with us. Uh, Tony, introduce yourself.
3: (laughs) Yeah, guys, sorry I made you move around uh, your times today. No, you're fine. Yeah, always glad to talk Pacers, and... I made a when he when Peter Dinwiddie left the Pacers, I talked about it on on my podcast and made a graphic for him, and I was like, wow, I'm probably the first person who made a graphic for the assistant vice president of basketball operations <laughs> in the history of basketball Twitter. So excited to talk about him and uh, all things Pacers and Sixers. Yes,
1: yeah, so for those of you who haven't heard, Peter Dinwiddie recently hired to the Sixers front office, going to be working under Elton Brand, probably will have a big role within the franchise. We've heard news of the front office collaboration that's been in place we might have some roles being shifted around and Sean I know you wrote a piece for Liberty Ballers here about Peter Dimley, like the moves that have been made by the Pacers while under his uh, since he joined their front office they include a, a, was it a trading or a, they trade or sign Corey Joseph that was a
2: trade in a salary cap dump move by Toronto And they basically picked him up for the draft rights to Amir Brelzic. I'm probably butchering the last name there. But it was, yeah, just one of those, uh, hey, get a quality backup for nothing kind of moves that uh, innovative front offices do.
1: Yeah, and they've made other great moves such as drafting Aaron Holiday, which some might say isn't a great move. I'm a big Aaron Holiday fan. I loved how he played this last season. Doug McDermott has kind of had like a career resurgence with the Pacers. They seem to have hit a pretty good court with the demontis Sabonis extension, Still a lot to go with that, but he had a really good year this past year. They were able to get Malcolm Brogdon, and, of course, most importantly, they got the one, the only T.J. McConnell, stole him from the Sixers, The (laughs) the most beloved point guard in the history of basketball. But, yeah, Tony, what could you tell us about Peter Dinwiddie? Like, some things about his background just whatever you know about him because you probably know a lot more about him than us yeah I don't know how much
3: of this has seeped over to Sixers coverage Sixers Twitter whatever Peter didn't he started with the Pacers in the ticket office actually so he has a law degree but then came to the Pacers and again so he was with the ticket office and built his way all the way up into the front office from non-basketball ops roles uh, and that law degree is what he used when he was studying the CBA to get there, right? So really, his journey to, up through the Pacers was really long. And he he's from India originally. I think part of that's why he came back to do this job. But I think that's the co- the coolest part about his rise to being a a big contributor with the Pacers front office is that he didn't start in in a in a basketball ops role or like lower level basketball or anything like that. He just worked his way through tickets and. Larry Bird of all people was the one who was like, "Wow, this guy's a really smart guy and a hard worker," and and uh, got him into the front office a long time ago. A long time being this decade, but everything's a long time ago. It feels like these days. Uh, <laughs> pulled him into the front office, and he he's worked his right way through there to being number three. I forget his exact title. Something VP of Basketball Operations for you guys. He's Executive VP, but yeah, really, um, just a very interesting story and and a very interesting group of. You know, Larry Bird picking you up into the front office and then Kevin Pritchard promoting you like just a very interesting group of
2: uh, events to, to get to where he is now. So, Tony, here in Philadelphia, we often joke about our collaborative front office. And over the past few years, no one has really known who the primary decision maker is in a lot of things. I think in Indiana, it's a little more clear cut. You have Kevin Pritchard. He's the guy where, you know, the buck kind of stops there. Uh, what do you know about maybe any areas of focus Dinwiddie had in the front office or any moves that have been made where they directed like, Oh, this was him kind of leading the effort maybe. Well, he is a lot of modeling and the cap guy. So I've
3: mentioned the CBA and his law degree earlier kind of intentionally because that was his expertise was the cap and all those rules. And like, that sounds like something every GM should know, but like, remember when Magic Johnson got his job with Lakers? He had to like study that stuff for like a year, right? He had to go to like a class and stuff. You know, it's, it's, we were, we were told he we went to class. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, him knowing that stuff really well is always really important. And, uh, on, t- you know, it's, it's funny. There was a wish TV, which is the local, I think NBC like news affiliate here in Indy and they did a story on Peter Dinwiddie. And he was sitting at his desk like half the story with Excel sheets in the background, which was super funny. Um, but, yeah, he's the cap guy. And as you laid out, and I have it pulled up now, your article kind of outlining some of the moves since he got promoted to the number three. You know, a lot of their their big moves have been stuff that's like picking up Darren Collison from his old team that doesn't want him on a value deal. And like, oh, the Wizards can't sign Boyan without going to the tax. OK, we'll get him on a value deal. Stuff like that that he, you know, looks around the league, does that modeling for all those teams and, and knows the rules and the cap space stuff well enough to uh, help the Pacers and help Pritchard, you know, set up the team to to get these good deals all the time.
1: As a salary cap expert, do you think he looks at, like, the Sixers' current salary cap situation <laughs> and, like, does he, like, twitch or quiver? Does he want to vomit? <laughs> Uh, probably, I don't, I don't think he
3: would have (laughs) liked to give, uh, either Horford or Harris the kind of money they got. Now the Sixers did not have a lot of options, so it kind of made sense at the time, but you know, that doesn't always matter in retrospect. Yeah. Not the best. So yeah, I'm not sure uh, what he thinks about that, but I, um, I'm glad he got a promotion. He deserves it. Well, the, right. The, the deal for him is that he's number two now for the Philly front office, right. Instead
2: of number three. Yeah. He's (laughs) the number two behind Elton. Okay. Correct.
1: Yeah, so I think
3: that's a good spot for him to, and it'll be cool for his, his cat brain and his, you know, whatever, I don't, I don't know what to call it. Mod- it's not analytics, but modeling in the cap sense, um, hmm. brain to try to figure out like, okay, how can we, how can we get out, out of this?
2: What can we do to move some of this stuff away? <laughs> so in how you're describing it, I kind of picture him as like one of those experts that goes into a hoarder's den and it's like, how can we get this house yeah. looking like a normal house again? And yes. he, he sees the Sixers as one of those challenges where <laughs> like piles of garbage are actually unwanted contracts.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's good at the bargain stuff, which honestly the Sixers need like crazy, right? They just, any capable dribbling player, please come
1: play on our bench. I, so I also cover, uh, Northwestern basketball for, um, inside NU and huh? they are, They had a rough season this past year, and I mentioned on a podcast, a a different podcast about a month ago, how it's weird the two teams I cover, the Sixers and Northwestern, both their weaknesses were that they didn't have a player who could pass, dribble, and shoot. All like they didn't have one player who could do all three, like at least average. Like, you know, (laughs) just it's amazing that the The basic basketball activities that like just there was no like. Small creator who can also be a shooting threat. Just the fact that it just doesn't exist on either team. It's just really amazing. See,
3: the fact that Shake Milton got as many minutes as he did speaks to the lack of a player who can do it. Not that Shake Milton isn't good. Shake Milton's good, but you know, he, the, the, the undrafted or whatever drafted 54th guy is, is, is the best at being able to do all those three things. Says a lot, but yeah, I think Peter did what he can come try to pick, clean some of that stuff up and hopefully not poach any uh, players in the Pacers in the process of doing so.
1: I will trade you. I will, I will convince the Sixers to trade you back. Like our next three first unprotected picks for TJ McConnell. I want him back. That badly. <laughs> he would really help right now too. So that's TJ McConnell does good things. He does. Yeah, Tony.
2: How would you assess his first year in Indiana? I mean, we watched a few games. You know when the Sixers played him, but uh, what did what did you think in your first TJ year?
3: I don't want to get too like eyes popping out of my head for the regular season because. In the playoffs, his minutes went down every game. And then in the last game, he didn't play at all. He got cut from the rotation. Uh, so he has his limitations. And I I need to remember that when assessing him going forward, right? Maybe he isn't quite the, maybe he's an 82 game player. I don't know, but he did good stuff in the playoffs for the Sixers. So could have been just, could have just been a weird matchup, but yeah, it's the first three games of the season. McConnell was, was bad, like really bad. And then he was awesome for the rest of the season. And he was like, yeah, I just had to figure out how to play with these dudes. And I can't explain it, like, every time I have someone who covers their team on my podcast to, like, preview a game or something like that, they're always like, ah, oh, TJ McConnell always kills us, you know what I mean? Because he's you just don't expect it. He's just this six-foot-tall dude who isn't that athletic, and he just tries really hard and is super fast when he can dribble, and that's a really important skill, is being fast with the ball. He just probes his way into the lane and creates shots in, out of any situation, like against his own, against man, full-court press doesn't matter, he's going to fly around long enough to get someone a decent shot, which is such a valuable skill. And it was awesome to watch him in the Pacers' second unit be one of their their better units just because he just doesn't stop running around.
1: No, TJ, like, my experience of TJ goes back so far. I remember him first playing those 2015-2016 seasons, and I was just – I just – I remember I would joke to, like, my friends, like, I can't believe the Sixers start the most unathletic point guard in NBA history. (laughs) But – and I was thinking, oh, man, this guy sucks. I had been a big Aaron Kraft fan and when he On played purpose? Boston, I was like, Aaron Kraft, like, why couldn't Aaron Kraft do this? But then oh, God. as I kept watching TJ McConnell, he kept doing all. I started to notice, like, wait a second. Like, he's doing everything he needs to do. He's so good at all these things. He's not a bad player. And then he eventually added that little mid-range shot. And then he, for some reason, his minutes always go down the playoffs. I know he's not. He can be a little bit of a target because he's a smaller player and he's not a, really a three point threat at all. So that kind of lends itself to not wanting to play him in the playoffs. But I mean, generally the Sixers played better when he was out there. He basically won game four, their only game of the Celtics semifinal series two years ago. He was the like sole reason they won that game and almost got them back into that series just because he was a terror. Like he was, he was playing possessed in like those two the game four, game five of that series. He wanted it so bad. And I just have such an affinity for the kind of guy where it's like, you can see he like he's obviously way more athletic than most of us will ever be, but you can see he's not that special of a, an athlete. He's not, he's not even a great shooter, not even a ton of skills, despite having a lot of them, but he just finds a way to make it work, and he's turned into a really good NBA player.
3: It's funny because you say that about – you know, you feel like he's doing well in the plus. After the first game they had against the Heat, I was—we talked about adjustments they could make, right? They lost by only nine. It didn't feel like they were about to get swept. You know, they played decent, not great, but I said, yeah, I think they should play McConnell a little bit more, right? Like, he, he played pretty good with the bench. I think he was like plus two or three. Again, second unit was good, something that was a mainstay for the Pacers all season. Like, keep him out there, keep his energy going, never, never let it slow down. In the next game, he was awful and played like eight minutes, and I was like, well, damn, I'm stupid, but. <laughs> um, it's just one of those things. It's like, it's so hard to, eva- I guess I'm only using four games and like 30 minutes of playing time to evaluate it. But it was, it was so interesting because at first I thought he needed to play more. And then I thought he was bad and shouldn't play at all. It was, it was very flip floppy. But yeah, I do remember uh that, that, that Celtics series. Uh, three years ago, two years ago, I can't remember now, but
2: yeah, it was three years
3: ago. Yeah, so. three years ago. So, yeah, that was, the, that's right. That was the first time making the semis with him. Being that's right. Um, so yeah, I, I know he can do it and he's a, a joy to watch and possibly the best locker room presence a team could have. You know, I've never heard him. I mean, it's the, you know, it's the locker room. They're not going to talk crap about their teammates, but it always has nice things to say about you know, every player, every coach, everyone in the organization. Just overall good dude to have on, on a team.
1: Yeah. TJ has very high approval ratings. I know he was pretty good friends with Joel. They would play video games together, they said. And uh, although I do know other point guards on like ho-hum regular season nights don't appreciate him that much. Uh, I know there's the one story of D'Angelo Russell during a game like TJ checks in and nine, like goes straight up to the baseline, is full-on hugging D'Angelo, won't let him get the <laughs> ball, and he goes, come on, T, not tonight. I just want to – I just want to get my run in or something like that. <laughs> I love that story. He's just a pass, man. That would make me so mad. Especially because
3: he, like, regardless of score, you know, like, I, I don't know how – I didn't like. I got cut as a sophomore in high school, but like I played enough basketball as a kid to to have played in games where it was like if you're winning by X amount of points, you're like not supposed to press. Like it's a rule of kids' leagues, you know. Yeah. And then you get to the NBA and TJ McConnell's like, oh, we're up by ten. Now nah, I'm gonna I'm gonna steal it from you. And he did it against the Sixers in the bubble you know, that first game when, when TJ Warren went off. But he did it against the Sixers, and I remember a bunch of Pacers media people were like, how do the Sixers not know he's gonna do this? He just did this for them for like <laughs> four years in a row. Yeah. Like,
2: Joel was very pissed off at uh, his guards in that game. Anyways, he, he pointed at TJ like, you know he does this?
1: It was Shake, right? Yeah. Yeah. That oh, was like part because they were fighting that game too. I remember that now. Oh, yes, goodness. there may have been a threat of a slap, but, you know, apparently all families <laughs> do that. At least the Sixers families do oh, that. Gosh. Is that what the spin was on that? I never really followed up that, on that. That was what I think Brett Brown said after the game. He's like, You know, families fight sometimes, like, yes, the casual Thanksgiving dinner where I threatened to slap my uncle.
2: (laughs) Uh, I I actually had some replies on social media that people said, like, oh, I have had that happen to Thanksgiving. I'm like, you know, different people, you know, (laughs) they have different life experiences, I guess. Um, but yeah, speaking of that, that TJ Warren explosion, I wanted to ask you about that, Tony. Uh, so that. 50 dropped 53, and then he actually like followed up and had a few really great games after that. So it wasn't a one-hit wonder. And Warren originally coming to Indiana, that was another one of those cap maneuvers that maybe uh, Dinwiddie had a, a hand in, where Phoenix was trying to clear cap space, and they they actually got assets to take on Warren, who's still on a really affordable deal for a couple more years. So how how much of that the couple of weeks was expected. Like, were there signs that he was going to break out at all? I mean, not obviously not dropping 50, but, yeah, what did you think about Warren's growth this past year?
3: I did not ever expect 50 from him, especially because Nate McMillan is, like, a share of the ball coach. Um, so I never would have thought that one guy would be like that for him. I think the highest that we've seen under McMillan ever was Oladipo at, like, 44. Uh, with Irrelevant. Yeah, so in, in quarantine, TJ Warren went back to North Carolina, where he's from, and he said when in, in interviews, he's like, all he does like in his life, like even when he doesn't have to practice to like scrimmage or like find friends to play basketball. Dude just loves playing. He was like, I couldn't play against other people because of COVID. So I just shot a bunch of threes and worked on my three ball. And they get to the bubble. And then someone asked Doug McDermott, like, Hey, who, who stands out to you from after quarantine? Who looks good? And he's like, dude, TJ Warren is shooting from absurdly far away and looks awesome. So we get to the first game, you know, and these are like the classic media PR answers, you know, you report on it, but don't make anything of it. And then it actually happens where TJ Warren is, is pulling up in Benson's face from 30 feet and is impossible to guard from anywhere. I mean, he's always been a good mid-range scorer, but he added the three and all of a sudden there's literally no way to stop him. I mean, that was just insane. And I I've seen him do a lot of good scoring games, right? He had the Pacers, I think two or three highest games scoring prior to the bubble anyway. So I've seen him, you know, be one was against the Sixers. He was 15 for 18, but they lost in Philly. Uh, but anyway, they, you know, I've seen him be that good and and be a big score for the team. But fifty three is just, it was just insane, and and you know the the pull ups at the end of the game to put it away, and it, it was just I've never seen him like that where he was just punishing anything, and to carry it. I mean, I I don't want to get too far ahead of the question, but to carry it through a few games and then to be start start drawing double teams. I mean, it was just a crazy quick transformation.
1: No, it was. I mean, it was very frustrating watching, like, from <laughs> our perspective, just, like, because some of them were um horrible cases of Sixers defense where they gave him open looks. It's like, this guy's red hot. What are you doing? But, like, some of the last shots, it's, like, we didn't do anything wrong. They just – he was making everything he threw up. And then, I mean, that's – he had always been good in Phoenix. He could always do that kind of scoring, those types of, like, he had the potential of a three-level scorer. He, like, with his size, his handles, his shot kind of coming along. So I, it wasn't, didn't surprise me that he was good on, that good on offense this year. But Nate McMillan really did get him to buy in on defense, which he just was not guarding like anyone in Phoenix. He let guys go by him all the time, and he really improved on that this year. So yep, I thought that was one of the biggest things for him.
3: There were some games. So I always talk about this. So you might have heard, I don't know if you, what you've heard or not heard before, but They went on this Western Conference road trip. Uh, They played Portland and Phoenix and um, Golden State and Denver, I think. So he improved so much as a defender this season that on that road trip, Brogdon missed two games. But he guarded Jamal Murray and then Devin Booker and then D'Angelo Russell and then Damian Lillard. And it's like, can you imagine – this is January, right? Can you imagine before the season starts being told, like, yeah, they're going to intentionally – put TJ Warren on those four guys consecutively on purpose and it's going to be the best option they have like it was crazy that and the Pacers do this all the time I mean like Bojan Bogdanovic still not a good defender but they turned him from bottom five defender in the NBA to like pretty capable
1: oh, and totally
3: yeah and Doug McDermott's still bad but you know same kind of deal bottom 10 defender to bottom 50 or 60 defender and all these rookies that I talked to and after they joined the Pacers, they are like, Dan, Bur- Dan Burke's gone now. He's an assistant coach. I think Philly fans know about him, actually. I think he said some stuff about him beat earlier this <laughs> season. But, uh, yeah, Dan Burke uh, uh, is always credited by young guys. They're like, he just teaches me these angles and positions to, like, be a better defender that I've never heard of before. And year after year, these wings come to Indiana, and they get way better at defense. And T.J. Warren's just another example. And to combine it with his same offensive output, right, so he's not exerting so much effort on D that he can't score anymore. It just It just made him such a good player. It was
1: crazy. Do you think they teach like the opposite of those angles in places <laughs> in Cleveland and Minnesota? Like, no, <laughs> D'Angelo, open your hips further. You know what like, don't. Like, I just don't get it. Like, how can other te- like other teams can watch the Pacers play? You know what I mean? Like, how is this
3: a secret? How does this keep happening year after year? But it, it does. It's 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 insane. It's so incredible to me. But it might not happen anymore. Dan Burke is a, a rumored to be on the way out with a new coach, so we'll see.
0: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com.
2: Yes, speaking of new coaches, uh, Philadelphia obviously has Doc Rivers now replacing Brett Brown, uh, but Indiana coaching overhaul as well. And I I wanted to get your insight onto that whole situation because it was just really weird how Nate McMillan, uh got the extension, and then I think it was maybe a week later, maybe a little bit longer, but then he was fired. And I think everyone outside of Indiana was just kind of scratching their heads as to what was going on there. Well,
3: I don't want to report this kind of for sure, but I want to try to explain it the way that it's kind of been laid out by other people and like loosely reported and stuff. But I think that coaching contracts don't line up with NBA season contracts. And and Mm -hmm. Nate McMillan had a team option for the coming 2020-21 season. So I think what happened partially is because the games were being played in August, his contract would have actually expired, and they had Uh to pick pick up the team option to have him, like, coach in the bubble and beyond. I Like, I don't know exactly the legality or the, the timing of how all that worked, but I think that's kind of how it went down. And then, uh, Zach Lowe did his podcast with, oh my gosh, I can't remember now. Van Gundy. Thank you. Yes. When they were, when that rumor came out that like they're thinking about swapping McMillan for Antonio and then the Pacers immediately announced it. They're like, okay, no, we don't, you know, we don't want this to spread. And Sabonis was out. They knew he was going to be out. So McMillan had his crutch to say the coach and then they got just slaughtered by the heat. I mean, embarrassing and. So apparently there was a conversation between Nate McMillan. This is from McMillan's mouth. He said this, which this is kind of crazy to me. He said to Kevin Pritchard before the season, if I can't get this team out of the first round, like maybe I'm not the right coach for this team. And that's crazy to hear from a coach. Now, as soon as Sabonis wasn't playing, he you know, he probably knew he couldn't win and had a built-in excuse to stay and keep his job. And I think you guys, me, everybody thought he would keep his job even after that, right? Like Sabonis wasn't playing. The Heat were better. They made the finals, right? They were obviously better. Uh, not a big deal. I mean, you shouldn't get swept and that's embarrassing. And he went three and 16 in the playoffs with this team. And that's part of why he got fired. I didn't think he'd get fired, but it makes sense that he ultimately did. When you look at it under the the spotlight of, okay, the the extension was really just picking up his team option because they basically had to. And he's been awful in the playoffs for this team. That's had a lot of regular season success. It was time to, to switch to the next era. So there were a lot of weird things that happened for sure. And it definitely looks pretty awful from the outside, but with, No investigation, but in the really granular level of how it all went down, it kind of makes sense.
1: No, yeah. I I mean, I think that they're – obviously, you would know more than I do, but I think that they probably wanted to keep them, but just – it's really hard. These owners and these executives who make decisions, they do not like being embarrassed and – as sad as it's say, sometimes just missing the playoffs isn't as bad as flaming out in the playoffs in an embarrassing right. way from like a reputation standpoint. I mean, Doc generally did a good job of the Clippers. They were a game away from going to the conference finals, but you blow a three one lead in that fashion, and not only to blow a three one lead, like at least the Jazz, when they blew their three one lead, it felt like they kept all those games close. They just barely missed out on it. they were really fighting. The Clippers like laid down and yeah, they're They were up fifteen at, twice. They just, but once the Nuggets hit them in like game seven, that run came, the people just died. They were, they were looking around like, who's about to do something about this? And no one did. And I mean, I think part of that is I gave a lot of credit to the Nuggets and everything they persevered through. But also it's just like, you're on national TV in front of millions of people and they're seeing your franchise sputter. And even though it's not as big of a stage in the first round in a series that, well, I don't think no one watched the Pacers Heat series. It definitely wasn't like leading the ratings, but <laughs> No. The, it was just like but that's the thing, it's like probably the Pacers decision makers are looking at it like I don't know. They've four games just pretty quickly everyone assumed the Heat were gonna move on, even if the Pacers were the higher seed technically. Kinda like last year how this everyone assumed the Celtics would move on. They probably don't want to be the team that is as an assumed sweep in the first round.
3: Yeah. And, and look, if it, uh, another thing, and I get what you're saying that like the embar- it's totally embarrassing. But they, they, you know, they had the excuses built in. No one expected them to win all that. They also got swept last year by yes. the Celtics, who were you guys beat them right? The, the Sixers beat them in the semis last year, right? No. <laughs> who did they lose? Oh, they we are, did they lose we, to? We are
1: one and eight in our last nine playoff games. Ah, excuse me. Celtics. Who did
2: they lose to? They lost four – oh, Oh, the Bucks. Duh, I'm stupid. Um, <laughs> they got swept <laughs> last year too. I would like to live in a world where the Sixers had made a conference finals.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pardon pardon me for that. Um, Yeah, they got swept the year before that, and then two years before that, they got swept again. So three of his four playoff appearances were sweeps. So even if individually each one is kind of justified, I think the collective embarrassment possibly from even people above Kevin Pritchard is like, come on, like – you can't win one game when you're the higher seed or, like, okay, I get it. Like, we don't have Depot against the Celtics, but, like, you can't – you know, we, we signed – we spent money this offseason on Tyreek Evans and Doug McDermott. You can't win one game, you know what I mean? Like, especially after they almost beat LeBron. I think that just a culmination of all that, even, even if the extension was legit, like they picked up the team option full intention of thinking he would come back, I think that just to go get pounded by 50 points in four games against the Heat was just I – mean, it was time. And especially if McMillan himself said that, he couldn't take the team any farther. He should be like, go. Oh, you know, put it all together. It was time.
1: Well, talking about how the Sixers and the Pacers both failed pretty spectacularly <laughs> in the first round. Of hey, play, injuries hard. are baked really heavily into both failures, though. To fair, this. fair. Although I, I'm a little lower on Sabonis than most, but that's, I don't think. Oh, they would definitely not have
3: beaten the Heat if he was around, but they definitely would have won a game or two if he was around.
1: The thing is, though, now both the Sixers and the Pacers—probably the Sixers a little bit more than the Pacers—but both teams are having a lot of like they're being thrown in a lot of rumors, or for like they could trade player X for this or this. These are the moves they need to make to try and move up from move up to true contender status in the East. And what like what is your read on what's going on with the Pacers, especially the Victor Oladipo situation? There's been a lot of news about that. Maybe he wants out of there, but then him pushing back on that. There's always some – with having two pretty much centers in Miles Turner and DeMontas Sabonis, and after Sabonis had his breakout year this past year, that maybe pit Miles Turner, they might be looking to move him. Like, what's your read on that situation, and what do you think is the are the best moves the Pacers can make to try and make themselves better next year?
3: I talk about the Depot situation a lot. So I I should have this down by now, but yeah. I kind of evolve the way I talk about it every time. I kind of just throw my hands up, right, because, you know, stemming back to July 1st, whatever, uh, he's he's in Indy, and they're pramping for the bubble, and he's practicing, and the team is like, you know, we're going to we're gonna get down to Orlando, and he's going to practice there, and we'll figure out from there if he's going to play. And that all sounds great. And then is like, nah, I'm going to tell Shams that I'm not playing. And no one had any idea that was coming, including the Pacers. And then he did play and followed the original plan that the Pacers had. So that was really weird, you know? And there's already been, like, some some reporting in the past about potentially there was, like, a, a small fracture in their relationship right after his injury, and it's maybe healed a little bit out of the way. But you know, there were no indications that all of a sudden that Oladipo's relationship with the Pacers wasn't that great. And then he played, and he, and he didn't play awesome, uh, but he played. And then, you know, the athletic report comes out that he is looking to move on. And then he goes on Fat Joe's Instagram live, which again, why do I keep having to say Fat Joe's Instagram live? I cover <laughs> basketball, but, um, and refutes that, kind of refutes that and says his priorities is, is money and winning, which seem to kind of contradict each other in context of the Pacers. And then they hire their new coach, Nate Bjorkran on Tuesday and he texts Nate Bjorkran the same day he's hired and is like, Let's go. Can't wait to work with you. And he's like enthusiastic on the team zoom call and all this stuff. And it's, it's impossible to get a read on this guy. I'm just kind of shrugging at every turn. And I, I just, I can't trust anything that he says or that is said about him at this point because even the reporting about him ended up being wrong. He changed his mind. Right. So I, I, I have no idea what I like, what I kind of know is that he has not requested a trade via the Pacers. Um, so that's, a thing, and I don't know that he necessarily wants to be traded. I, I I think he could want to play for a different team next year, but I don't think he necessarily is going to request a trade, and I think the Pacers would be smart to not trade him until the trade deadline because his value is terrible right now. So his situation is super odd uh, because so much has happened between his injury and now. But the biggest factor in any Oladipo situation going forward is that he's just kind of not good right now. And with Turner, um, nothing reported suggests that he wants out, he hasn't said he wants out. But when you have two good centers uh, that take up a lot of your cap, the the natural conversation is okay. You should keep one and trade the other. And Sabonis is better, so eventually, yes, they will have to trade Turner, whether that's this summer, next summer, this trade deadline. Who knows? It, he's been in rumors for three years, so I I can't get a good read on that one either. But yeah, there are uh, justifiable reasons to move both of those guys and shake up the team. But also, seems like the new coach uh, has talked to both of them, so we'll see what happens.
1: The Pacers have two good centers that take up their cap. whereas the Sixers have three power forwards, and one of the, and two of them might not be good, and they're taking up most of the cap.
3: Let's go, Jay Rich for Depot. What's the what's the trade there? Are we done? Is that it?
1: If, would they take? Would the Pacers take that?
3: Uh, I kind of doubt it. I don't know though. <laughs> yeah, his value is really low, like really low. So I don't know.
2: I don't think the cap mechanisms would work for that either. Oh
3: yeah, Jay Rich only makes like fourteen million. I forgot about that. Yeah, I, I don't know.
2: It's it's and he could be really like he could come
3: back next year and be awesome, and that's part of why I think they should keep him till the trade deadline. But I just think his value is so low that exactly the fact that I'm even thinking like oh get Josh Richardson more. like <laughs> that would be cool. So it's hard. Yeah, it's 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 really hard to kind of and I feel bad for the front office because they have to think about all the stuff I just said as a reporter, but they also have to think like. Like, like, what's the way a depot trade works out for the Pacers? Like, how do they get the, like, good value for him, given his injury, and he doesn't turn out awesome for his next team? Like, the odds that they look good in any depot deal is, like, 5% maybe. So I I do not envy their position.
2: So speaking, uh, you mentioned Turner and that whole situation. We wanted to bring a little Sixers positivity into this, so I know Go. Daniel had some – Embiid-Turner matchup data he wanted to oh. throw your way. Oh, no. Yeah, so, No, 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 I, I
3: Wait, I thought this was
2: optimism. Well, it's optimistic for
3: us. <laughs> Turner <laughs> is embarrassingly bad against the Sixers. He even flipped off the crowd. I've never seen him have that kind of passion before.
1: Yeah, so there are some centers who give Embiid trouble. Mark Gasol comes to mind, always just been able to hang with him. Other centers like Andre Drummond, uh, I think Zach Lowe described it as he feels bad for Andre Drummond whenever <laughs> he plays Embiid, like... He's a young child. He wants to come help if they scrape their knees. He says Andre Drummond just gets bullied by Embiid every time they play. But Miles Turner, well, maybe not that bad against Embiid, has not done well against him. I got these stats from LandOfBasketball.com, just some basic Embiid versus Miles Turner stats, and they're 10 matchups against each other. The Sixers are 6-4, six and four, pretty basic. The stats they put up, Embiid has put up 28 points per game, about 13 rebounds per game, 3.5 assists, One and a half steals, about two blocks. Turner, on the other hand, is only eight points, five rebounds, half an assist, one steal, and just under a little under two blocks.
3: Do you have that in front of you right now?
1: Yes. Okay. Do they
3: have fouls on there?
1: Yes. I'm get. Turner's at what?
3: Five point nine.
1: I'm gonna get to that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Sorry. I'm gonna get. So Miles Turner has not outscored. He has not outscored Joel Embiid in any of their ten games thus far. And in rebounds, they have tied once, and Embiid has out-rebounded him the other times. Okay. In blocks, they have tied four times. Embiid has beaten him in blocks, like, four in four of their matchups. Miles has only got two, despite probably Miles Turner being – racking up a few more blocks per game in, like, other matchups than Joel Embiid does. He's a bit more of a shot blocker. Their free throws they have had in those ten games. Embiid is 85 for 112 from the free throw line in games where he plays against Miles Turner – Turner is only 17 for 26. And then in those 10 games, Miles Turner has fouled 45 times. He has fouled out twice, both the first and the 10th game. And there was only one game in which he had fewer than four fouls against Joel Embiid.
3: So we unlocked on Pacers. (laughs) Uh, all, every Sixers Pacers game, we're like, all right, get go, go ready. (laughs) Miles is, Miles is fouling out. (laughs) It's
1: like, it's, it's, so this is,
3: like obviously Embiid is really good and is like the ultimate of this type of player, but any like bullyish, strongish center, Turner's just not that good against. Like Montrezl Harrell just pushes his ass under the basket. Like Andre Drummond, guys like that. Any any kind of finesse big like Vucevic, Turner can hang with that guy. He's obviously great. Like you just said, the blocking, the the rotation from the weak side, the pick and roll defense, all phenomenal stuff. There's a reason he gets. You know, good defensive recognition from players and coaches in the league, but Joel Embiid just kicks his ass every time. It it's like, and that's part of the reason that I I just never want a Sixers Pacers matchup in the playoffs because the Sixers would easily win because they one of the Pacers' five best players is out of the game for
1: 30 minutes because he just can't contain Joel. Well, no, see, that does. I, I don't know if I agree with that because TJ Warren might average 50 points <laughs> game, like, against the Sixers. Warren
3: so. played amazing in every game against the Sixers this season. Like, every. You don't I think, need to tell us. <laughs> <laughs> that first game that the Sixers won, I think, November, November, December, I forget. Yeah, he still, I already said it, but yeah, he's like 15 for 18 and Brogdon was really good, but uh, Turner Turner did not play well and, and they lost. <laughs> oh my gosh, four and a half fouls. I've I never actually looked into the specifics because. Yeah, one of my favorite memories covering the Pacers is when Al Jefferson put Embiid in a blender. And the only reason Al Jefferson was playing in that game is because Turner had like four fouls already in the second quarter.
1: Yeah, there was one game I found in particular, February 3rd, 2018. And the Pacers actually won this game 100 192. But in that game, Embiid finished with 24 points, 10 rebounds, 3 assists, 2 steals, 1 block, 7 turnovers. But. Miles Turner, on the other hand, in about 20 minutes, zero points, three rebounds, two assists, basically just did nothing the whole game. See, those are those games where
3: the boomers come out and they're like, "He's such a bad rebounder for a center." Like, oh my gosh, we need to trade him for any breathing tall person. I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> it's excruciating. So but it makes me feel a little better that like it happens to Drummond and other good players. But yeah, Embiid just kicks Turner's ass. <laughs>
2: I did so not, you, you I did you not enjoy
3: that optimistic section as much as you guys did.
2: Yeah, we need after the T.J. Warren and you stole T.J. McConnell that's talk, fair, We fair. we needed one in our
1: column. But yeah, how have we not talked about the Pacers having three T.J.s, which is by far one of my <laughs> favorite things in the league? Although T.J. Leaf might be the worst rotation player in the NBA. He's not a, not a rotation Mario player. I'm gonna
3: yeah. stop you there. He's not a rotation player. <laughs> I just remember the Sixers. He was a disaster. He, yeah, that's not that's not unique to that Sixers game. He is (laughs) a disaster of a basketball player. Yes, he will be playing for some European team at the end of next season, if he even survives next season. He already has a guaranteed deal because of his rookie deal. But yeah, he's bad.
2: All right. What what was the other thing you were about to to throw in? Oh, I want I wanted to mention you mentioned Brogdon. I kind of wanted to talk about that because he was a guy a lot of Sixers fans wanted the front office here to go after last summer. And I wanted your just kind of take on what you saw from him in the first season. I know his, his create creative responsibilities took a big leap forward. He averaged a career high in assists and it's, but his, as a result his shooting also dropped off a lot. Um, do, you, do you think he can kind of get back to his prior percentages, not quite 50, 40, 90, but you know, better than this was last season while still being more of a lead ball handler type. And you, you just summed it up pretty well. That was pretty good. Yeah, I mean, so it
3: was kind of obvious before the season. He's not going to be 50, 40, 90, right? He's playing point guard now. And he has to pass and create and, and draw the attention of defense and all that. Sure. Okay. Whatever. His percentages will go down. But they were like, not, I think it's like 42, 33 or something like that. His pro- Yeah, they were 43. really bad. I was yeah, they surprised. Were, they're real low. Uh, free throws are still so good. But so, from, from the start of the season to, I'm just making up a date, Christmas, maybe a little bit before Christmas, he didn't get hurt that much, and he was really good. Like, when like when All-Star voting started, I forget the exact date of that, but they, you know, I thought the most likely All-Star on the Pacers was Brogdon, not Savonis, right? He was that good up to that point. So, then he gets hurt a few times and just never recovers into form, and I'm not blaming injuries for the way he played. I'm treating it the way you just said it. He had way more creation responsibilities, and... Other, you know, early in the season, other teams haven't, can't scout him as a creator. And then all of a sudden teams are like, okay, here's what he's going to do. Bada bing, bada boom. He can't do anything. And he wasn't, he was still good. You know, he like 16 and six or seven or whatever he ended up averaging. He was a good player, real, like, like the absolute highest end non-all-star level starter you can have. But mm-hmm. the per- percentages took a big dip. And the thought a lot of the time was like, oh, when Depot's back, you none know, of those will naturally come up. But then Depot was also <laughs> terrible and those numbers did not come up at all. So I'm confident they can come up a little because I think a new coach, uh, will have the offense not take as many bad shots like mid-rangers all the time that McMillan loved and Brogdon takes a, he- a healthy amount of mid-rangers last year. So I think just naturally, uh, his, his like efficiency will go up. And I think that if, if the new coach, you know, gets the ball and Warren Tansmore more runs, runs through, I mean, Sabonis had the ball a trillion times per game last year, but just Warren gets the ball more often, uh, pressure will be off of him to create as much. I think his percentages will definitely go up next year, but his usage might go down a little. So his stats might maintain about the same, go down a little bit, but uh, he's definitely a good point guard. You know, he he can create for himself and others at a a healthy rate, good defender, um, amazing community guy, like great for the team. Just, it's kind of interesting evaluating a guy going from the perfect third banana for Giannis and Chris Middleton to, okay, like you're our best creator now, go do stuff. And it's like, wait, what, you know? So, Still a good player. I think he's just a little bit overcast right now. And if you know if Depot returns and is able to have the ball more and, and they they run through Warren more, you know, who knows exactly how they handle touches next year. But his if assuming and I think this will happen that his usage goes down a little bit, I think he'll uh, look a lot better next year.
1: Yeah, that's kind of like um Tobias Harris in twenty nine in the twenty nineteen playoffs, basically being a spot up corner shooter to 2020, they don't bring back Jimmy Butler, and they tell Tobias Harris, "Hey, can you be Jimmy Butler now?" So. <laughs> so. Well, it could be worse. You could have traded uh, two first round picks and Landry Shamit for him. Then,
3: man, then it. would oh, okay.
1: Be that okay. That was deserved after we brought up the Embiid. <laughs> miles the that was right below the waist. I'm sorry. That was me. <laughs> it was, I I do miss Landry Shamit. I, I miss. I he can dribble pass and shoot. I mean, kind of. The dribbling was coming, but. <laughs>
3: Fair. Understood.
2: So would you, you know, at this point in time, would you say they, you would do the Brogdon sign and trade again? Yep, definitely. Okay.
3: Yeah, I mean, because, well, ugh, okay, so they did it before the extension of Sabonis, but knowing now that they're going to have Sabonis for four years, like, yeah, get a good point guard for that same time frame, and they fit well together, they play well together when they're on the court. Yeah, absolutely, I would do it again. Okay.
1: I would decidedly not do some of the Sixers' 2019 offseason moves again. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, there are uh, some head. Basically, everything outside of uh, the rookie extensions, I've been like, really okay, interesting. Um, trying to make sure I didn't miss anything good there. See, like when they did the Jimmy Butler signing trade, I was like, oh, cool. Josh Richardson's good. That's cool. Uh, he did not turn out to be as good as I thought in that in that move, but.
2: Yeah, that that got spun really well because it it made sense at the time. Oh, Jimmy was going to leave anyway, so at least we got Josh Richardson for him when people were kind of like convinced, oh, Jimmy, he'll go to L.A. and they won't get anything. So getting Josh Richardson seemed really good. But then in hindsight, it's like Jimmy wanted to go to Miami. We facilitated that instead of just making him the legitimate offer to come back and run it back with him and J.J., And, you know, it's all hindsight, obviously, but everything just looks disastrous. Yeah, in the moment I thought,
3: you know what? They stole Al Horford away from the Celtics. He can fill up their bench center minutes when it beats out. Great move, 76ers. Yikes. I am not a smart person is what I learned that day. Well, we'll have to hope that uh, Peter Dinwiddie helps (laughs) out make better decisions in the future. (laughs) (laughs) He can swindle some team
1: into taking one of Harris Horford, hopefully. Well, if those Boomer Pacer fans who hate Miles Turner want to watch some good, a good rebounding basketball team that sends four guys into the paint at the same time, they are welcome to watch the Sixers and listen to us. But Tony, you've got another podcast to record here in a little bit. We don't want to keep you too long, so uh, I think we're gonna wrap it up here. Plug whatever you got to plug before we close this out.
3: Uh, all my, I tweet all my stuff, so all in one place at t NBA on Twitter. If you wanna read Pacer's stuff or hear my voice in other places, but I cannot imagine wanting to hear my voice more than maybe 30 minutes a day. So (laughs) uh, I, I understand if people do not want to pursue that, but yeah, that's where all all my stuff will be. If anyone wants to check it out.
1: Well, I certainly enjoyed hearing your voice for the past 45 minutes. It was, this was a fun shoot! I mean, that is a slight to the length of our conversation. (laughs) 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 No, no. Sorry. Yeah. We're taking, we've taken too many jabs at each other in this podcast. I understand <laughs> I'm that. I'm never I getting invited the, back in. Sixers and Pacers, like, while well, not rivals, are competing for the same relative goal, but, you know, we're, we're the two teams that got bounced. We gotta work together. Yeah, yeah. To we way. gotta, collectively,
3: the Heat can be taken down if the Sixers and Pacers t- team up their powers.
2: Hopefully the over on Sixers-Pacers playoff wins is above 0.5 next year. (laughs) It's all going to be in the Pacers' hands, honestly. I mean, we're lingering here, but, like,
3: honestly, the way the East is looking, the Pacers are going to be fighting for, like, the six or Seven Seeds, so they're going to have a tough matchup. We'll see.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, Tony, for coming on the show. This is really fun. And, uh, yeah, Sean, I'll talk to you next week.
2: Yep. Thanks, Tony. Enjoyed the conversation. And, uh, yeah, Daniel, maybe uh, next week we can get into Jameer Nelson as assistant GM of the Delaware squad. (laughs) but uh, until then I'll talk to you then alright